Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 185, I am joined by Dr. Michael Rivers of Modernizing Medicine EHR to discuss EHR implementation ophthalmology, how EHRs should optimally be designed for retina practices, and the remaining gaps that need to be filled. A list of financial disclosures will be attached in the episode description. Remember, you can claim your CME credits via the AEO website for select episodes. Simply click on the link in the episode description to claim credits. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now privileged to be joined by Dr. Michael Rivers. Dr. Rivers is formerly of the Retina Group of Washington uh, in Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, and currently is Director of Modern Eye Medicine Ophthalmology and a full-time employee of Modern Eye Medicine uh, EHR Company. Uh, Dr. Rivers, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Jay. really appreciate you inviting me. Uh, we ask our guests always the same question. I think it's, it's actually extremely interesting always, but in this context, even more so. Um, tell us a little bit about your background. So why did you become an ophthalmologist and then a retina specialist? Well, I have been a photographer since I was 15 years of age. And as we all did when we went to medical school, we tried to figure out where we would fit in. And it, very, it became very clear to me very early that I was very visually oriented. Um, and then I happened to get a research job in medical school with Stanley Chang. And so I did vitrectomies on rabbits one summer and uh, got to meet Stanley himself. And at that point in life, I was going to be a retinal specialist. So let's talk a little bit about your, your path. So after you finished fellowship, I'm assuming you went a more traditional route to start uh, going into practice. And then let's talk about at what point did you transition and move into your role now with EHR? So actually, the EHR part started in medical school and residency. I actually wrote code and wrote a rudimentary EHR when I was a resident. In fact, during my Will's fellowship interview for retina and vitreous, I gave a lecture the same day on my EHR database that we used to keep track of patients in our clinic. After Iowa, I did follow a more traditional path. I uh, went to Washington, D.C., joined a single doctor, uh, Reg Sanders, and I had been friends before we both moved back to Washington. Reg and I put together the original group of seven, and of course, the retina group of Washington is now 30 providers. I practiced medicine as a retina specialist until a year and a half ago, and always felt that it was important for me to do other things besides patient care. Um, I have other interests. I mentioned photography. I've continued to teach and be a photographer for all these years. Uh, I was very interested in, in EHR years ago, and so I helped lead the transition to electronic health records for the retina group of Washington and met the nice folks in modernizing medicine. I got to meet the founders, one of whom is a physician, Michael Sherling. And one day my wife looked at me and said, you know, you're just not happy. Why don't you go talk to those folks down in Florida and see if they have something for you to do? And so I did. And it was very fortuitous for me that they were looking for somebody uh, to help them with ophthalmology. They already had four ophthalmologists on staff, but added me as a fifth. And I'm now a executive for a software company. Um, and it's a, 
in some ways, it's kind of what I've always meant to do. Uh, it feels very natural. Um, it's there in, been a, an easier transition than I expected. And I've, I've really enjoyed uh, working for this company for the last year and a half. We're going to spend um, the rest of the time just basically talking about several EHR topics and some maybe tied into specifically ophthalmology uh, and some just from in general medical terms. You know, so the, the first thing I'll start, I think this is the most common sort of feedback that I'll get from older physicians, not necessarily younger ones, but even sometimes the younger ones is why, why are the interfaces that we use? I know there's so many different ones we've encountered. Why were they historically, quote unquote, more user unfriendly? than typical sort of applications that consumers use for day-to-day business. For example, you know, your, your Microsoft Office suite or even the, the recreational games people play, people find that sometimes it's just a little more unwieldy historically to use an EHR. Um, what's the history behind that? Why, why was, you would think that a lot of financial investment, of course, would go into this. This is a very promising field. Um, even dating back, people were looking and anticipating that medical systems would require an EHR. And we had the EHR, for example, the, v- the VA has CPRS. But why was it slower in terms of the complexity of development, uh, at least on the surface for the user? And maybe part of this you'll explain is due to complexity behind the scenes that the user doesn't see. Jay, that's an excellent question. And I think that the foundation of this conundrum has to do with the fact that the original EHR programs were all written with the government as the client. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that EHR adoption hugely increased around 2008, 2009 with the financial stimulus package that was rolled out by the federal government. Federal government wanted to stimulate the economy after the recession. And one way to do that was to put billions of dollars out to have physicians increase their use of EHR. I remember being in a meeting in 2010 or 2011, and the implementation of EHR by ophthalmologists was 4%. And so EHR companies designed their systems to grab data that CMS needed for PQRS or meaningful use or whatever program the federal government wanted. So not a lot of attention was paid to actually having software be helpful for physicians and physicians' practices. Mm-hmm. And that's really been the root of, of this problem. Um, it's, it's an interesting problem when you look at existing companies that have been around for 20 or 30 years. And most EHR companies have been around that long at this point. Um, they, may, they may have tried to convince people that they are now truly cloud-based and they've taken their client server technology and thrown it up into the, into the cloud. That's not true cloud technology. But a lot of these programs have a base in trying to gather data for the government. I think the unique challenge we have, and one that I do feel modernizing medicine is trying to meet, is having physicians give input. Um, I mentioned that I'm one of five ophthalmologists that work for the company. All told, we have 18 physicians, including one of the founders, who are physicians. And I truly do believe that that feedback from clients combined with physicians who are part of the company really make the best possible, uh, really deliver software that is, is, is more uh, for physicians and for physician practices. 
What's the most common sort of feedback? Now, we can talk about MM, but just in general, you know, physicians may know you, may see you in passing, they know that you're involved in EHR, your friends or colleagues. What's the most common feedback you get from both our ophthalmologists and non-ophthalmologists vision colleagues about EHR? Uh, I know there's there's kind of general complaints yeah. from the older generation, oh, the computer is this, that, but are there specific sort of feedback you've taken into account? You're like, well, that's actually a good point as we kind of move forward and refine these systems. I'll, I'll give you an excellent example. Continuing on with the the development of EHR software to deliver data to the government or to large organizations, one of the things that's very important is to deliver data back to clients. You know, if as a physician, I'm going to take the time to put all this data into a database, how do I get that information back? How does it help me? How does it improve my clinical outcomes? How does it make my patients happier? How does it make my staff happier? There's so many different ways that software could be helpful in a medical business. And you're absolutely right. Most software right now does not do any of that. And it can be very frustrating for physicians to have to use these, these, these platforms. You know, one of the things that I think many of us feel maybe that ship has sailed, but that was brought up at the time of the government rollout about a decade, I can't believe it's been a decade, but a decade ago, um, was the idea of a universal EHR. And this is for the layperson who's not a physician, that was one of the most common questions is, you know, why can't you see my results or my tests? Can you share my test results or my records? And that may have sailed because we have so many platforms now. Do you foresee ever in the future a time when we'll be more unified in terms of cross-compatibility? of our software? I do. I, I think that, that interoperability is something that's very important. I think the vendors understand that. There are vendor groups that are competitors by day, but at night work on interoperability. One is called the Commonwealth Alliance, which is one that we're involved with. There's also stimulus from the government. The government has made it very clear that over the next few years, that interoperability is going to be necessary if you're going to have a certified EHR. So we have projects uh, that we are working on that I can't discuss in more detail that revolve around what our software looks like and more importantly, how our software is connected with other software in the future. Uh, and, and that is going to make a difference. Uh, and, and it will come. Uh, we, we, we all understand that that is the, um, one of the goals of having EHR is having records be transferred very easily and having physicians in different part of the community, let alone different part of the country, be able to look at a patient's records. Um, so I do foresee that that will happen. You know, a hot topic, not just in EMR, but in the world and in the United States right now is, is the idea of security. Um, and this is security when it comes to our privacy and social media applications, for example, Facebook security, even with our elections in the last election. Uh, and more recently, security with other applications, add-ons to your browser, widgets. And, and in, in the context of health, it's critical for a couple of reasons. One, on a personal level, you know, we have HIPAA. We have protections for people's security to protect their health information. And the second is just on a systems perspective to, to protect that information because there's a large global data that might be useful and could be used for non-benevolent reasons in the wrong hands. Um, Security, obviously, then is a huge, huge issue when designing an EHR uh, to make it both HIPAA compliant, but also secure from hacking or invasion. Um, again, without getting too technical, because you know many of our listeners may not be programmers, you know what sort of 
of measures and how do EHR companies in your, your specific circumstance kind of look at security going forward? It's becoming a greater and greater issue in other senses. I mean, how do you kind of maintain that security without making these EHRs too cumbersome, slow, or kind of bogged down? Well, I think there's two aspects to security. And, and you mentioned the, the first. Obviously, there is a regulatory environment. I actually had a podcast last week with a patient engagement company. And one of the strengths of this particular company is that they have spent a lot of time worrying about the regulations associated with contact. We all want to text our patients, but obviously that's not HIPAA compliant. But there are HIPAA compliant ways that we can engage with our patients. And that's an area of medicine that uh, I think all of us would like to find uh, more robust tools. You know, the days of sending the postcard to remind the patient that you need to come back for an appointment are long gone. We need to do better than that. And patient engagement is a real hot area in EHR and practice management systems. But when we talk about security as at a programming level, it actually isn't as complicated as you might think. We all know that there is a cloud out there, but there are different varieties of clouds. Uh, you can have a local cloud, or you could have something as robust as uh, the highest tier of security with Amazon Web Services, which is frankly where our cloud is 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 located. Um, cloud-based material, cloud-based data is in some ways more secure than if it's in a single server. And the reason for that is cloud native cloud applications are actually distributed through different parts of the cloud. So the entire database doesn't reside in one location. It's fragmented, so it's harder to hack, as opposed to a server-based system where the entire database is in one place or in two places with a backup, obviously. But if somebody has access to that server, then that server can get cracked and all the data is available. In fact, there are these hybrid systems where people who have been writing software for a long time, they have what are called cloud-based systems, but they're really hybrid systems because they're still client-server applications. There's a single server, and that single server now resides in the cloud. So for clients looking for security, a true cloud-based application is truly the way to go. You know, the last question, which again is maybe more critical in non-outpatient settings such as ophthalmology, but redundancy is critical, right? So now we're, we're essentially dependent, we're on a system where we're dependent on the system to function and that requires electricity, that requires hard drives to function, that requires the software to work. And despite our best efforts, things happen. There can be electrical outages, outages there can be system failures, there can be software crashes. And we've all been, unfortunately, in a situation where we're in clinic where things break down and you end up in a situation where you may have to switch to paper temporarily. And if you're halfway through the process, it may slow things down. This happens in all industries. For example, the airline industry, this may happen. But in medicine, and let's talk about an emergency setting or an operating room setting, we're in a different situation because we have people's lives who are directly at stake. So the question is, what sort of you know, redundancies are available besides paper, for example. Is paper redundancy something you, you still think is necessary? What sort of options are available for emergency medical settings, for example, when EMRs don't work for whatever reason? I think that's a, as, as a huge question um, among multiple different specialties. I, th I think that is critical. I, as you have probably heard, there's some uh, investigation into this universal health record 
which you would have on a chip or you would have with you. And so you would carry and that theoretically you could put into a computer and look at it even if you don't have internet connectivity. I'm not sure that the security considerations are going to allow that to happen because if you've got a single fob and somebody steals it, then all of a sudden, theoretically, your health records are someplace else. Um, on, a, on a more local level, again, this does have to uh, be evaluated by physicians and medical practices uh, on a vendor level. As a vendor, for instance, we take the fact that we have security and we have a cloud-based application and it's a native cloud-based application. We take that very seriously. But we understand that sometimes the cloud gets turned off. We understand sometimes the electricity gets turned off. What, what do you do in those situations? So we have cascading systems available um, for our clients. As an example, again, because we have a native cloud-based solution, if one part of the internet gets turned off, we have redundancy around the internet and Amazon Web Services has redundancy. So that database is still available. Uh, let's say that you have a power outage. Well, with ophthalmology, obviously it's tough to examine your patients, but you may still want to have access to your records. So if the power's off for your building, but you still have cell service, our software allows you to connect through a cell signal. In fact, it's pretty easy to do. All you do is turn on a hotspot and plug in an iPad and there's a native iPad application so that 140 megabytes of programming is on the iPad and all you need to do is transmit the unique data so you can get access to your patients. Let's take this scenario, however, where the internet's out and the electricity's out. Well, at that point, it's hard to understand how you're going to see patients. But if you really wanted to, we have a system as well where we've got a separate cloud you can have PDFs of your records in that separate cloud that get doc downloaded into a local computer and you could run that local computer on a power box hmm. um, and an uninterruptible power supply and you'd have access to all those PDFs. So we don't have to revert to paper if you have all those in place. You know, I, I said that was my last question, but I, I thought of another one which is critical and I can't believe I almost neglected it for ophthalmologists. Um, you're in the business of EHR, but we deal with other types of software, imaging software, Heidelberg, Cirrus, Zeiss, whatever machine you have. Sometimes you have an imaging software that connects all those, such as Merge, for example, we use here. Um, how difficult is it to interface with those other companies? We talked a little bit about making more a universal EHR for your records to make them intercompatible. But I'm curious on a, on a business level and when you interact, how easy it is, is it to interact with those companies, make things intercompatible to where... For example, if you look at an image, you can get it to pull up via your own EHR. And if there's an interpretation done in one, it kind of is redundantly put in both. I mean, I'm just curious on an operations level or when you interact with those people or code, is there a pretty good kind of uh, synergy between the companies? Um, and if if so, then like, how does that translate? Because I think that one of the, everyone seems to have a different sort of imaging software set up. And that can make it a little complicated when Again, when we're billing and documenting, we need to have everything kind of line up in one place. You're absolutely correct. In ophthalmology, especially, imaging is key. We can't do anything without evaluating images of patients, no matter what type of ophthalmologist we are, almost to a fault. Um, the good news is, in the short term, there are solutions, but the long-term solution is going to be even better. Fortunately, unlike EHR, which just kind of developed 
in a large scale in the eight, in the in 2008 and on because of the regulatory issues we talked about earlier. Images have been saved in a compliant format because of radiology for a very long time. So the take-home message here is that if you uh, if you purchase or rent a new acquisition device, you should talk to the vendor about that device being DICOM compliant. And DICOM is a set of standards. It's very standard in radiology. So for instance, if you buy an MRI scanner from company A or company B or company C or company D, they have DICOM compliant imaging so that no matter what system you use, EHR, PAC system, freestanding analysis system, that DICOM image can be looked at and evaluated. We do not have that in place right now. Uh, so there are an, a multiple different standards. As a, as a vendor, we have multiple different ways of interacting with different companies' acquisition devices to bring those images either into our own EHR, we have our own image management, or to connect. So for instance, we have written a connection between merge your PAC system and our EHR, so it's very easy to look at those images and evaluate those images and store that data within the EHR. But once we have a full DICOM compliant suite of acquisition dev devices, we have in our product roadmap the ability to incorporate those DICOM images and do your analysis within the EHR. Dr. Rivers, it's been super helpful and informative. I know our listeners will be excited to hear this. Again, this is um, great to have someone who uh, has a similar background to all of us, retinal surgeon, but um, has the uh, kind of the ability and experience to speak um, very intelligently and very eloquently about um, EHR's challenges. And again, I think you probably would agree. I think that um, I was finishing medical school around the time of the rollout. And I remember there's a lot of negativity about it. And I feel EHR has really brought a lot of benefits. And I think that for the most part, it's benefited our patients. It may have impacted our flow temporarily, but I think long-term it was a definitely a worthy investment for our field and, and for all of medicine, really. I agree, Jay. I think the ability for us to understand what's happening with our patients, having that data, having analysis of the data from the EHR be delivered to physicians, hopefully soon at the point of care, so that while you're examining patients, you're getting feedback on how that patient may respond to different treatments. That's just around the corner. And I think that's going to help us be better physicians and take care of our patients better. And ultimately, that's really where, where we're all still at. Dr. Rivers, thank you so much for your time and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you, you too. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 185 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. You will also find our blog, Equal Round Reactive Lessons for Our Pupils. Remember, you can now claim CME credits for select podcast episodes via the American Academy of Ophthalmology website. Log in as an AAO member, visit the link in the episode description, and there will be instructions on how to claim those credits. Remember, on our website, you can sign up for the mailing list. That will get you updates on the most recent episodes as they release. At the bottom are links to subscribe in the Apple Podcast Store as well as the Android Store. You can like our Facebook page or find us in the Apple Podcast Store or the Android Store. We're on Twitter at Retina Podcast and to contest us, click on the contest link on our website or email us directly at retinapodcast at gmail.com. We really love getting feedback on things we can do better and things we're already doing well. 
We also appreciate anyone who subscribes via Android Store or Apple Podcast Store. Please leave your positive comments in the form of a review. Many thanks to Dr. Michael Rivers for joining me. Thanks to Dr. Louis Kai, Dr. Angela Chang, and Dr. Michael Vanacasa for preparing this episode. As always, listeners, thank you for what you do on a daily basis, the patient care you provide, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here each week. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Good feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye.